All right, so everybody, this is our last um, class before Pesach. So we will not have class next week or the following week. We will be back on the 20th, I believe it is. So we're going to have a long break, but you guys are going to have lots of opportunities to flex your Musser muscles at your Passover experiences, hopefully, hopefully with family and friends. Um, and yes, it's going to be awesome. Okay. So just a word about Passover since, you know, it's coming up. Um, so the important, the main important thing to know about Passover is that the purpose of the holiday is to transmit the principles of our faith to the next generation. That is the purpose. The mitzvah in the Torah is, you shall tell your children. Now, not everybody has children. Uh, not everybody's children will be at the Seder. Not everybody's children is interested in listening <laughs> to what we have to say, uh, whether that's a long-term problem or a short-term problem. Um, but nevertheless, as a as a nation, right, as a people, um, it's important to know that that is the objective of the Seder, is to pass down the principles of our faith to the next generation, whether they're your kids or somebody else's kids, or just to tell your own family, friends, and loved ones, right, the fact that we were extricated from Egypt, even though we were so intertwined with the Egyptians, we were extricated from Egypt for a purpose, and that purpose was to receive the Torah so that we could go on to make a difference in the world, period. That's the kernel of truth that we're supposed to try to transmit at the Seder. And that's why we're so happy. It's such a happy holiday. And I know it's a holiday that comes with a lot of preparation, but try to take the preparation in stride and to simplify it as much as you can because the main emotion is supposed to be one of incredible joy and gratitude that we were taken out of Egypt, that we get to be this lucky, lucky nation that got to come out and receive the Torah and be chosen as the leaders and teachers of humanity. This is so critical. This is so important. Like, let's not lose that thread. Let's not lose that thread of truth that that's what we're doing here. Okay, so that's something to keep in mind as we are getting ready for Passover. So welcome Jordana and Aaron and Tammy and Allison and Stephanie. Great to see you all here today. And Dana, if I missed you, I don't remember. Um, okay, so in that sense, hang on one second. Sorry. Uh, to that end, it's very important to remember all of our Muslim lessons because as you might know, uh, when family gets together, sometimes our Musser triggers are triggered. Uh, that's what sometimes happens. Um, I don't know about your family, but that's what sometimes happens in my family. So <laughs> hi, Heather. Hi, Avril. So um, it's so important to give yourself, especially since we're going to be going for three weeks without class. So try to give yourself some kind of little muscle infusion over the year, you know, over the weeks that we're not together, whether it's reviewing notes or doing some reading or listening to, you know, podcasts to remind yourself of these truths, because we need, we need the fortification when we get together with people, particularly people we might not be with most of the year, you know, we might not have such good tools for, and preparation is key. You know, you go into situations ready 
okay, you know, here's what's going to happen. I might be stressed and this person might do this and I might not get as much sleep as I'm used to. And I might not have as much privacy as I'm used to, or there might be more, you know, mess or chaos or there's travel or whatever, you know, your holiday in particular is going to look like. But if we're like, okay, you know what? All of these are just musser moments and I know what to do in a musser moment. Okay. So I'm ready and I'm psyched. And there's your app, by the way, the Rookie Cobell app. That's Thank you. App. Thank you, Heather. Heather's my press agent. And there's my app that you can download. It's called Rookie Cobell. And uh, all of my lectures are on there. So if you need a little infusion, you can do that. Okay. Welcome, Jen. Okay. So on that note, let's study Musser. Uh, yes, we are going to have class on April 20th. That's going to be our next class after today. So that's three weeks away. Okay, let us begin. We are doing Malbim on Mishle. We are on page 158 and we are on chapter 15, verse 10. Okay. Musar ra la rach. There is dire moral discipline for one who forsakes the road. So ne tochachat yamut. He who hates reproof will die. Yikes. Okay, so what is Musar Ra? Bad Musar. Huh. Well, there's good Musar and there's bad Musar, right? In fact, um, sometimes people, people who grew up in, you know, Jewish day schools or whatever, sometimes associate the word Musar with negativity. Uh, because sometimes it's like your teacher gave you Musar, your principal gave you Musar, right? That means you got called on the carpet. That means you got into trouble. So when I tell people I'm teaching Musar, they're like, why would I want to do that? <laughs> Why would I want to, you know, uh, chapter 15, we're on chat. Wait, hold on one second. I'm I think I'm totally in the wrong place. I am. I'm reading you the wrong verse. Sorry. I had two. Uh, right. I was like, I think we did this in our class on Tuesday or something. I had, I had two bookmarks and one was in the wrong place. Okay. Sorry, guys. Can you say what page in this book that? Yes. Something? So forget everything I just said in the past five minutes. We're on page 171. And we are on chapter 16. Thank you, Tammy. Verse 11. Okay. Um, right part of Musser is admitting when you're wrong. <laughs> okay. So forget, forget the good Musser and the bad Musser. Just know that there's good Musser and bad Musser. But bad musser is still good for you if you can use it to grow. Okay. 11. Here we go. Peles umozne mishpat lahashem. A just compass and balance scale are Hashem's. Ma'asehu kol avne kis. All the weights in the bag are his work. Okay. So this is like a verse about the measurements that God uses in order to determine how, how we're doing in our behavior, right? Welcome, Sheila. So what does this mean? A just, a just compass and balance scale are Hashem's. All the weights in the bag are his work, right? So these are different things. A compass me measures distance and a balance, right? Measures weight. And when we say in, in, in Hebrew, ma'asehu kol avnei kis, a kis is a pocket. Avnei kis means the stones in your pocket. The, the works of Hashem are like, are like, you know, all the, all the things that you put in your pocket, all the things that you treasure, right? You know, I mean, women don't usually have pockets, but 
you know, like the typical, like little boy who puts everything in his pocket, you know, and then he, you know, you try to do the laundry and you're like washing the pants and there's like a rock and a penny and a bug and a, I don't know, uh, an old pretzel, you know, and you're like, <laughs> why? Cause it's all, all of the treasures get accumulated in the pockets. Right. So what this means is that, um, Hashem is using these weights and measurements, right. In order to figure out like, um, in order with, to, with which Hashem uses to measure human deeds. So there's actually a whole book called Derech Hashem, The Ways of God. It's written by uh, the Ramchal, Rabbi Moshe Chaim Luzado, um, who was a, a mystic lived a couple hundred years ago. Welcome, Leslie. Um, and the whole book, The Way of God, and this is why I've never taught it. It's very esoteric. It's all about how God runs his world. Like, how does God decide how to like judge people or how to determine when something good should happen or when something bad should happen? And it goes through all these different methods and systems by which God runs his world. Okay. So this verse alludes to some of those. Okay. So here's what the commentary said. The compass measures distance to determine the shortest route to a destination. Thus, the Almighty can measure a person's ways and behavior and guide him right. right. Why is God measuring our deeds? Because he cares about us and he wants us to do right and he wants us to do good. So he's going to use his tools, so to speak, to assess how we're doing. Right. For a while, I wrote an article in uh, our local Jewish newspaper, the Cleveland Jewish News. And anything that I sent in, they basically published. I, they never corrected it. They never, you know, commented on it, which I don't know. I've never written to a newspaper before. Maybe that's not weird. But for me, I felt like I wanted to be engaged with. I wanted to be told, okay, so this is going to be interesting to our readers. This you should revise. This is repetitive. This is like, I wanted edits, you know, why? Because I wanted to produce the best content possible. Even though it was convenient that they just published anything I wrote, I didn't want them to publish anything I wrote. I wanted to be, you know, kind of assessed and reviewed to, you know, if, if it's not good, I want to know and I want to do it better, right? So this is what Hashem does for us. He doesn't just publish anything we write. You know, he'll be like, uh, I don't think so. You know, just tweak this and make this a little better and make this a little stronger. And I feel that you can do better. You know, when I wrote my first book, my editor said to me, my publisher said to me at the time, he goes, I think you have another book in you. And I was like, nope, I've written everything I know. I don't have another book in me. You know, I was, and I was like, what would I even write another book about? Uh, but then I did, I did write another book. And now I am, thank God, writing a third book. Right. And I always think back, I don't even know if you remember saying that to me, but I always think back, we really do want to be coached in what we do because we want to do it well, you know, and even though it can be unpleasant to hear corrections or edits, but that's really what, what's good for us. In fact, people who succeed are people who are open to edits, right? So, um, so this is what Hashem is doing. He's coming, he's coming with us with his compass, you know, and his balance scale, and he's measuring and editing and commenting and revising and assessing, you know, and we, we might be like, oh, come on, Hashem, I'm doing my best. Leave me alone, you know, but that's not really a very mature attitude. A mature attitude is this. It's uncomfortable to be corrected, but that's how I get to be my best, right? So I want that. I want that correction. 
Um, and he can weigh his deeds in the pounds of the balance scale, as it were, to reward him as he deserves good or evil. So the balance scale, the balance scale, you know, in the in the horoscope, there's uh, many people don't know that the horoscope is based in Judaism, that every Hebrew month has a corresponding sign, right? That's why you'll see that like a Virgo, which I'm a Virgo, it's from like the end of August to like the end of September or whatever. I don't, I don't really know. Maybe it's the end of, I, I don't know how it is in the, in the English, but it's never like a neat, clean month. Why? Because it actually corresponds to the, the Hebrew month. Virgo corresponds to the Hebrew month Elul, which is when my Hebrew birthday is. My Hebrew birthday is on the eighth day of the Hebrew month of Elul. So all of this corresponds and the, the sign of, um, the sign of what comes after Virgo, um, the, the balance scale, what's that called in, uh, in the Zodiac? Does anybody know? Libra, maybe is Libra the balance? That could be. It's Libra. Okay, Libra, yeah. So Libra is the Hebrew month of Tishrei, which is the month of Rosh Hashanah. Why is there a balance scale? Because Rosh Hashanah is the time that God is weighing and measuring all of our deeds, right? That God is putting everything in the balance scales. So, you know, like, like Sheila just said, the coaching is very, very necessary. We want mentorship. The weights in the bag, so we were talking, that's, that's like the stones in the pocket, right, are his divine deeds against which he measures human deeds to make a correspondence, right? Thus, if you obey my commandments, I will give you the rain of your land. So um, take heed lest your heart be deceived and he will shut up the heavens and there will be no rain. So what does this mean? That God, God also has a collection of deeds, so to speak, in his pocket, right? Which means what? If you do this, I'll do this. If you do this, I'll do this. So God is always mirroring our behavior. That's what King David meant when he said it in, in Psalms 121. He says, God is your shadow. Hashem Tzilcha, God is your, it's often translated as God is your shade, but it can also mean God is your shadow, right? That means that God imitates our behavior, just like your shadow copies and scales, copies everything you do, right? If you pick up your arm, your shadow picks up its arm. You put down your arm, the shadow puts down its arm, right? So too, Hashem shadows us. If you act to others with benevolence and kindness and compassion, and you give the benefit of the doubt, then God will act towards you with benevolence and kindness and compassion and give you the benefit of the doubt, right? If you're willing to overlook and not be picky about what other people do, then God will be willing to overlook and not be picky on everything negative that you do. So, so the example given here is the example that's written in the second paragraph of the Shema, where, where it says, you know, if you will listen to God and you will follow his guidelines, then God will give you the rain and the land and all of this, right? There is this concept of rewards and consequences that when we as a nation and when we as individuals do good, God will respond in kind, mirror our actions and bestow us with good. And the, the Torah says something very interesting when... Um, the Torah says the words of, it's called the, um, what's it called in English? The chastisement, right? When God, uh, Moses tells the Jewish people, listen, you're going to go into the land of Israel and you're going to encounter all these foreign nations and they're going to worship all these foreign idols. And here's what's going to happen. If you follow after them and you intermarry with them and you worship foreign gods, then God is going to do all these horrible things to you. And it lists all these horrible things that have happened, by the way, to the Jewish people. It actually sounds like a prediction of the Holocaust. It's really, really scary, to be honest. Uh, it's not a fun Parsha to sit through when they read that out loud in the synagogue. But the wording used 
in that text is, if you will act with me with keri, the Hebrew word is keri, kuf reish yud. That word means happenstance. That means if you, the Jewish people, act as though everything is random and meaningless, and there is no higher power or higher meaning or higher justice to the universe, then should I tell you what your punishment will be? It's just a natural consequence. I will act with you as though everything is random and meaningless. And as if there is no higher power, higher meaning, higher justice. Meaning we are always in the driver's seat. If you behave like the world is random, God will mirror you. And he too will behave as though everything is random. If you behave as though everything is meaningful and has purpose, then God will mirror you. And he will show you that everything is meaningful and has purpose. So that's what this verse is saying, that God is going to not only assess us and mentor us and coach us. And when we're kind of sliding off, he's going to tap us on the shoulder and say, hey, hey, I think you can do better. I think you can do better. He's going to give us a little wake up call. Right. And also that God has this pocket full of tools that he will use to mirror the tools that we will use as well. OK, so that's this verse. Thoughts, comments, questions on 11. I was thinking that when you were talking about wanting um, feedback and editing, and I was thinking like that's how some children behave when their parents are like apathetic, right? Mm. That they'll sometimes write that whole negative attention, no attention at all. So like sometimes the kids will act up because like they're searching for those boundaries to mm. know, mm -hmm. to feel like they're important. Yeah. Interesting. You know, sometimes little kids will say, oh, you're so lucky you don't have a bedtime or you're so lucky your mom lets you eat whatever you want at dinner, you know, and as an adult, we'll look at that and we'll say, well, that's neglect, you know, that's dysfunction. That's not a healthy household, you know, but an immature view of that is, wow, you're so lucky you don't have any rules, right? Theme of Passover, right. Right, right. That is the theme of Passover that, you know, we weren't just freed from Egypt so that we could do whatever we wanted. We were freed from Egypt so that we could enter into the framework of Judaism, right? Because the point of living in this world is not just that you could do whatever you want, but that you have a system of guidelines to help you be your best self. That's why we were given freedom so that we could do something constructive with it. Um, I, I, I agree with Heather. Um, this is Sheila. I agree with Heather about the, uh, yeah, about that, about the uh, children seeking for um, rules and boundaries. Um, that happened to me as a child. It happened with my son. It happened with my sister, with my brother. It happened with my whole, all the children in my family. So, um, I can, you know, testify, I can be a witness to that. Um, and, um, also I, I have a comment on the, uh, the, the sign, the, the zodiac sign of Libra. Um, I put it in the chat that I thought it was interesting that, um, the scales of, uh, balance, um, you know, like the weights and measures are also the signs of like the 
you know, the court, the courthouse with the, um, this justice, you know, should be like, everyone should be equal and get mm-hmm. their, um, mm-hmm. their justice. And I just thought that was equal because it just reminded me of like Yom Kippur. Um, I guess it's like, right. You said it's a month after, um, Elo, right. For Libra yeah. or it overlaps. So, um, I don't know. It just, that's just what I thought of when you were speaking about the Hebrew months and the zodiac signs. So I don't know if there's any connection, but yeah, there is that the balance scale is the Jewish sign of justice. That's why it was chosen for the month of Tishrei because Rosh Hashanah, which is the first day of Tishrei is the Yom Hadin, the day of justice. Okay. So, um, so yeah, so that's what I thought in my head was that, Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's the, it's like the reckoning and the resolution. Um, And so to me that um, symbolically, in my head was um, the scale, the balance, um, weights mm-hmm. and measures, and the sign of justice. So yeah. I wanted to comment on that. So absolutely, and, and yeah. what Heather said just made me really sad because um, it happens, and you know, I got a little choked up when she was talking about it. So thanks for bringing it up, Heather. Thank you, Sheila. Okay. Let us continue to verse 12. Toavat Malachim Asot Resha. It is an abomination to kings to commit wickedness. Kibitzdaka Yikon Kise. For the throne is established by righteousness. Hmm. I wonder if there are any monarchs who need to hear this. Hmm. Let me think. <laughs> we, we spoke two verses ago, right, about a magic rests on the lips of the king, that a king has so much power, you know, and we talked about how a Jewish monarch has to have first and foremost humility, and how it has to go together, right, so here we're talking about how um, a a king, you know, a king who commits wickedness is so much more dangerous than a regular person who commits wickedness because he has so much power and so much influence and his behavior affects so many people. Not only that, but the king doesn't always have influence, doesn't only have influence on his own constituents. He also has influence on other kings of other countries who have relations or connections or business with him, right? So a king, this is what this is what leadership is, is understanding that it is not a power trip, but a responsibility that everything and everything that I do, the stakes are so much higher. You know, um, I think those of us who are parents have already experienced this. The moment you become a parent, you know what, from the moment that you're pregnant, you start to recognize that you're making your decisions based on somebody else's needs right? When you're pregnant, you, you want to be more careful. You want to make sure you stay safe. You don't want to smell smoke. You want to, you know, you don't want to smoke. You don't want to drink. You don't want to eat unhealthy foods. Um, spiritually speaking, you don't want to be around angry people. You don't want to be around negativity, even cursing, you know, the fetus can experience a lot of things while it's there that I know many pregnant women who like to make sure that they're fetus hears the sounds of Torah study or prayer, and they may go to synagogue, even if they're not regular, regular synagogue goers, because they want their fetus to be exposed to spirituality and connection. So from the moment that you, you know, a woman knows she's pregnant, she'll often start to act like a leader, right? This is not about power. This is about responsibility. I'm responsible for another human being. And then when that child is born, for sure, you want to childproof your home. You want to make sure there aren't dangerous or toxic things in your home. 
You're not going to use certain words around your kid. You, you're going to want to shield them from certain negative things. You're going to want to make sure that the homes that they go and play in are good ones, right? So, you know, I mean, being a parent is a huge, huge position of leadership, right? And and that, like you're the king of your castle, you know, so to speak. I saw this hilarious video on President's Day about this mom who was talking about how being a mom is basically like being a president and the, you know, your constituents are always protesting to like overthrow you. <laughs> it was actually really funny. If I find it, I'll send it to you guys. Um, but it really is a good metaphor, actually. You know, you're the king of your castle. And the question is, what are you going to do with that kind of responsibility? And there are some parents, uh, or I should say, there are some very good parents who occasionally, myself included, who occasionally are vulnerable to that power trip. You know, you can't do that because I said so, you know, or not in my house, or I'm not interested in hearing that, you know, and we forget that it's not about power and control. It's about responsibility. It's about gentle, humble leadership. That's what it's really about. Okay. Commentary. Kingdoms are set up on, on a basis of social justice, but they become stabilized and durable through righteousness, good deeds. Imagine if this were so. Imagine if kingdoms were set up. Obviously, this is an idealized, and don't forget the author of these words is King Solomon, who himself lived these words, right? Kingdoms are set up on the basis of, by the way, we're not just talking about kingdoms. We're talking about countries. We're talking about democracies. We're talking about republics. This is how it should be. Kingdoms are set up on a basis of social justice, but they become stabilized and durable through righteousness. It's so ironic that the word righteousness is barely ever used in common conversation. It's almost like such an outdated, you know, archaic word. What does that even mean? You know, but imagine if this would be a value in countries, in governments, in companies, that righteousness should be a value, acting in consonance with good character, acting in alignment with good values, that that should be a thing. Just imagine what kind of a world this would be. Hence the opposite, wickedness is self-destructive for a sovereign. So Many leaders do not understand this. Acting badly is in your own bad self-interests, right? The bottom line is that people will follow a bad person if they're scared of them, but the minute they realize they don't have to, they won't. Whereas good leadership inspires true followers who will follow not because they have to, but because they want to. And if, you, if your real goal is influence, that's a far better way to get it. This is also what people don't understand about parenting. The more power and control you hoard, the less power and control you have. People don't act controlling unless they feel desperate that they don't have control. The more power and control you give away, the more power and control you actually have because people, your leadership will be inspired by respect and not by fear and hate. Robin. No, it just not in the Jewish world, but it did bring when you said um, companies, I did think of Chick-fil-A. You know, I know there are other companies like that, but that whole um, foundation of that runs through the entire company. And it really is a thing 
Um, well, tell me what you mean, because I'm not I'm not familiar. Well, with the whole saying. concept of there's a whole value system. Everything is oh. based on Christianity and the morals and it, the entire company is run that way. Every employee, whether you're you know, even if you're Jewish and you go in there, there's just a whole sort of code of ethics. And it's, it's just interesting how it's um, and, you know, goes into like they have these. Um, this program, like this camp for kids that, you know, like in these communities. And it's, it's interesting, you know, how somebody's values can translate into entire corporation. That is very interesting, especially as you say that it's, it really is the company culture, because I feel like sometimes companies try to like, it's called virtue, virtue signaling, where a company is like, hey, patronize us and we'll send 5% to, you know, the rainforest and the Amazon. Like, they don't really care about the rainforest and the Amazon. And there's nothing about their company that suggests that they're being sustainability conscious. They're just doing it so people will think, you know, oh, we're a super, you know, green and clean company, patronize us. So sometimes these things can be used manipulatively in, in companies, you know, where it's like, we're, we're such an ethical company, but if you actually dig a little deeper, those ethics don't permeate the actual corporate culture at all, mm-hmm. you know? So it's interesting. Um, yeah, I know Chick-fil-A has definitely been the, the subject of a lot of controversy because of that, you know, what Tammy just wrote. So it can be complicated. Okay, any other thoughts or comments on verse 12? Um, I think it's also very important, um, not just in families, you know, and as parents where we'll often say, you know what, we should really practice what we preach. Like, oh, we tell our kids to speak nicely. Are we speaking nicely? You know, we're telling our kids to, um, you know, invite the unpopular kid to the party. Are we inviting the unpopular kid to the party? You know, and I think that's very important as parents to ask ourselves those questions. But I think it's also really important in companies and organizations, particularly nonprofits who are dedicated to a cause. You know, like let's say you have um, an organization that's uh that services kids with special needs, right? So ostensibly, the mission statement of that company is to help the disadvantaged, okay? Now, the question is, does the company, does the organization rather practice what it preaches? Well, let's say there's a new hire in that organization and that person is disadvantaged because they're new and they don't know the way around. Well, what's the, what's the culture in that organization? Are people going to be extra nice to that person and show them, Oh, oh my gosh, here, come, let me show you around. Yes. And you know, here's the bathroom and here's how we do things. And let me help you. Oh, you're not sure how to work on that project. Totally. Let me, you know, then yes, then the organization really does practice what it preaches, meaning it incorporates its, you know, purported values within the organization itself. We don't just, you know, we don't just care about people who are disadvantaged who are not part of our organization. We also care about people within our own organization. And you, you know, you can see this happening. People forget. People forget to live their own values. It happens so often. It's like, if you're not consciously, or if it's not coming from the top, where you're consciously paying attention to keeping these values strong, it's so easy to just to just lose the thread and just sort of get sucked into like regular human nature. Okay. 
Anything else on 12 before we move on? Okay, 13. Ritzon Melachim Sifsei Tzedek. Righteous lips are the delight of kings. Still talking about kings. V'dover Yesharim Ye'ehav. And they love him who speaks in decency. Okay, so now we're talking about communication, right? Whenever the whenever King Solomon uses the metaphor of lips, right? We're talking about communication, the things that we say. Okay, so righteous lips refers to strict justice in civil life. Speaking in decency is a higher level of personal integrity, going beyond the strict demands of the law with a straightforward, honest mind. Okay, so the first half of the verse is talking about civil life right? Like how do you deal in public with public affairs, with communal affairs? And you have to be, you have to be just in those areas. You have to be fair. <clears throat> the second part of it, right? The speaking in decency is personal integrity. That means that it's not, it's not what you have to do. It's not necessarily what other people expect you to do, but in your own personal life that you are going to have this standard of integrity for yourself that is not even necessarily called for. It's above and beyond what you have to do. And whenever we see people acting this way with personal integrity above and beyond what they have to do, we will like universally, we will all look at that and be like, oh my gosh, that is so beautiful. Right. Um, I remember when I first got engaged to my husband and my husband's family, there's six boys and two girls. So my sister-in-law who was 16 years old at the time. Yeah. She made me and him a photo album. She had collected from our parents, these like, you know, baby pictures and pictures from growing up and these little, you know, artifacts from our childhood and some pictures of our engagement and da, 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 da. And she made them all into an album and she presented it to the two of us, you know? And I was thinking about that, like, that's really above and beyond. Like, that's not just like, oh, be nice to the new sister-in-law. You know, that's like, we're so happy you're a part of our family and we're going to warmly welcome you in and make you feel like one of us. You know, that's so beautiful. A new person coming into a family can often feel vulnerable, you know, like a bit of an outsider. And, you know, there's, you know, what's expected, which is be nice, be polite, be kind. But then there's like above and beyond, like, oh my gosh, we're so excited. Here's a photo album. I, I, I love you. You're my sister. We're connected, you know? It's so beautiful. And so we too can do this here. You know, again, we're talking about kings, right? But it's talking about anybody who has influence. You, you don't just have to stop at what you're, you can go above and beyond, you know, and do more than what you have to do. I think it was on my Tuesday class. Um, can't remember which class it was where somebody was sharing that a family member, um, trying to remember I'm trying to remember the details. I think a family member had come to a hospital and there was like a long line and there was all this protocol and they weren't getting any attention, you know? And finally this one nurse whose job it was not to do this came out and greeted her and helped her and explained to her what was going on and showed her the room that she, you know, just really like above and beyond, not part of her job description. You know, these are the kindnesses that are unforgettable when you go beyond what you have to do. You didn't just, you know, cross the item off your list you made sure that it was going to be extra special. And these are, you know, used with our words, right? 
we're talking about lips and we're talking about speaking in decency, how much power we have with our speech, with our ability to communicate with our words, you know, to make other people feel good. Um, it says here, um, with a straight, uh, with a straightforward, honest mind, you know, just really trying to do the right thing. You know, it's, it's, it's just so powerful. There's so many small things we can say that will make such a tremendous difference in the life of another person. It's actually easy. If you have your head on, you have your radar on, you know, you have your ears and eyes open. There is so much that you can do to make another person feel comfortable and welcomed. So I think it's just, you know, it's important to recognize that we are leaders. We are leaders in various situations. We might not think of it. We might not realize but we have a lot of power to use our uh, faculties to not just do the right thing, but to do above and beyond the right thing. Rafi, I was going to say, in um, the like talking about leadership and business and you know that world too, when you do the right thing and you go above and beyond for say a client, it just feels good and you can have no ulterior motive. But ultimately, the byproduct is usually loyalty or repeat business or, you know, a referral or all that kind of thing. And it just it can build and build and build on a more kind of superficial level, but still, yeah. you know, in that world, too. Yeah, that's so true. Um, and what I find interesting is that, you know, so many times what really inspires people in that sense is when actually somebody has done something wrong. You know, right, like right now I'm dealing with an issue with my bank that is so, so, so frustrating. Basically, I, I start these like accounts when my kids are teenagers and they start working and, you know, so they can put some money away for the future and they can have a little checking account with their own debit card. And so because they're under the age of 18, my name goes on the account as well. And then when they get older, you know, I take myself off the account so they can have their own account. I'm not kidding you. I've been dealing with customer service at my bank for about a month to try to get my bank, my daughter's bank extricated from my name. Please do not ask me why this is so complicated, but I will tell you that they have lost me as a client. I already decided after Pesach, I'm switching to a different bank. I just can't, I just can't deal with it anymore. But I could tell you this, if somebody at that bank, right, would go above and beyond and, and actually acknowledge that this is ridiculous, right? Make it up to me where I actually feel like, you know, it matters to you that I'm having this crazy experience, you know, this, uh, not that crazy, this annoying experience, they would probably retain my business. It's not about not making mistakes. It's about going above and beyond to repair a mistake. Everybody makes mistakes, right? I'm sure, I'm sure in your business, Laura, right? It's impossible. Oh, yeah. Laura, Laura does. Well, I, um, I, I always say like, we don't, I mean, it's easy when things are going well, that's easy. It's when things go wrong, which they do obviously every day, <laughs> you know, it's how we, it's how we act and how we respond to the problems. And That's right. you know, we do our very best to, to, you know, respond well to the problems because that's, and that's how you learn. And that's yep. where Musser comes in handy. Yep. Yep. I mean, look in my business too, you know, there's always going to be people who are disgruntled, people who are not happy with some of the decisions that we make or some of the things that we do, you know, and I've, I've had to learn the hard way that that is part of being, you know, in community service or in any service related business, that there are going to be some people who are unhappy with you, you know, and the question is, how do you respond to that disgruntledness? 
You know, do you really make people feel seen and heard? It doesn't necessarily mean that I'm going to revise my stance or the decision of the organization, but I can still do everything I can to make people feel seen and heard. Right. And, uh, you know, I can't control if somebody decides to take their business elsewhere, so to speak, or, or if they don't. Um, but I can at least know, rest assured, knowing that I went above and beyond to try my best to help people understand that I care, you know, that I care about them. So, um, yeah, that's interesting, Tammy, how a company treats those who are no longer customers, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, in, in my business, so to speak, it's also different because I've become friends with, with people who have come through our synagogue, through our organization over the years. And even if they no longer belong to our synagogue, they're still my friends, you know, and I still care about them and that that's genuine and that doesn't change, you know, but, um, I think it's so true in personal relationships as well. Are we going to make mistakes? Yeah, of course we're going to make mistakes. Are we going to say hurtful things by mistake or sometimes even on purpose? Yes, we will. Then the question becomes, so now what, what are you going to do with that? And you can make people feel seen and you can make them feel heard and you can go above and beyond, right? And then, you know, very often the relationship can be salvaged because of how you handled the crisis, not because of averting or avoiding a crisis. Crisis avoidance is it's not possible all the time, you know? So, um, so that, that's very powerful. And especially, you know, a person, like I said before, in a position of leadership, you know, if you have influence in a family, whether you're the older sister or the older sister-in-law, or you're the mother, or you're the aunt, or, you know, whatever, whatever, you're the popular one, whatever, whatever the reason is that you might find yourself in a position of influence, you know, as we said before, it's about responsibility, not power, even more does it become your job right, to ensure that you are using your power of speech in a constructive and not destructive way. Okay, any other thoughts or comments on verse uh, 13? I was just thinking about the person at the bank, like if they went above and beyond and did the right thing, their day would be so much better than like arguing with you and being defensive and not doing, you know, going above the end. Yeah. Like it's only bad for them. Yep. Yeah. So true. It's really so true. People get stuck in a cycle, you know, let's say a customer or a client shows up and is argumentative or accusatory, then the person will by definition become defensive and snippy. And then the client or the customer becomes more vociferous and louder and it escalates, you know, um, unless somebody is willing to be the first to make it not so, you know, I often feel as, as a Jew, whether I think people can tell I'm Jewish or not is not the point, but I feel like I'm a leader because the Jewish people are supposed to be the leaders and teachers of humanity. So if I find myself in an uncomfortable customer service situation, I'll often be like, you know what? It's my job to demonstrate respect and civility because I'm in a leadership position as a Jew. And so it doesn't mean that I won't assert myself in a case where I've been wronged, you know, or if I bought a damaged item or I wasn't treated right or whatever the case may be, but that I I, as a Jew, am a leader and I have to lead with civility. It's my job. 
Jordana, were you going to share something? To share like a, a kind of a customer service thing that you know really made me think at the time and makes me think now. Um, when my dad had passed away, there were IRA accounts that we had to transfer and, and there was so much paperwork and things to do. And he had the gentleman that was helping him all along with this money. And now we contacted him and he was not helping us at all. And we couldn't get anywhere with it. And it was like we were spinning our wheels. And there was a point where he said to us, well, you're not making me any money. So basically, like, why should I help you? Oh, my gosh. And there was nobody else to help us. Like, there, this was it, you know. And meanwhile, my dad had put his money with this man for so many years. So it just, you know, it makes me think of, again, everything that you're talking about and, you know, why would he even go there? I just, it's hard for me to even understand how people can be like that to one another. And also makes you think about the way you treat others. Well, especially, especially when you are in such a sensitive place in your life, like that is right. I I, I can't even understand that. That's, that's terrible. But definitely, like I said, it just makes you think just in general, like how people treat each other and why we're trying to grow to treat other people with kindness and consideration and be better people. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that story. I think it's so true what Judy had said also in the in the chat that, you know, customer service has definitely taken a nosedive since COVID with, you know, everybody being short staffed and a lot of times stores aren't open when they say they'll be open because hours change over COVID and, you know, things don't get updated and there's so much frustration and, you know, for a long time, people were very scared and, um, you know, tempers were short and there wasn't a lot of confidence in a company, you know, like what measures were they taking to protect their workers from getting sick? So, you know, things definitely got super complicated because of COVID in this situation, you know, but again, it falls on the leaders to create a culture of respect and civility, right? The, the owners of these companies, it's their responsibility, you know, and, and, and parents, it's, it's their job to, um, it's their job to uh, set a culture too with their own kids of how do you handle situations like that. You know, COVID definitely presented unprecedented challenges to human interactions, right? But it doesn't mean that they were unprecedented issues. It just meant like the, you know, factors were unprecedented um, for us. Like we, I, I had never lived through a situation like that. I was born in 1974. I never lived through a war. I never lived through a lockdown. I, I never lived through anything like that. So, you know, it was definitely unprecedented in terms of the external context, but it wasn't unprecedented in terms of the emotions. Yes. There are times where we feel scared. Yes. There are times that we feel panicky. There are times that we feel, you know, shut in. There are times that we feel frustrated. There are times that we feel impatient, you know, where we're scared to get sick or, you know, all kinds of other things. So, um, the factors were different, but the human challenge was not unique, you know? And, uh, so again, it falls to the, it falls to the adults in the room, so to speak, to lead the way in terms of how we as a society should be navigating these challenges. That's what this verse is really trying to tell us. Okay, we are going to end here. I want to wish all of you a beautiful, happy, and healthy Passover. May it be a holiday with just so much excitement for being Jewish, gratitude for being Jewish, and the ability to share that joy and gratitude with friends and family. Thank you. You Thank you, Ruthie. Happy Passover. Happy Passover. Thank you.